So last week we began a new series called We Believe on the Beliefs that Make Us Christian. The, the emphasis of the series is a reminder for us that being a Christian isn't just a matter of me and Jesus and my Bible. Yes, being a Christian is a very personal faith, but it's not just my private faith. Being a Christian is also identifying with God's people or his church and what we collectively as Christians have understood the scriptures to teach for the past 2,000 years. And what we're looking at aren't beliefs that are exclusive to Baptists or even exclusive to evangelicals or even exclusive to Protestants more broadly speaking. But instead we're looking at Beliefs that Christians have historically believed as Christians, and some might even say it's the faith of the church Catholic, lowercase c, which would mean universal or the whole, that would encompass Baptists and Evangelicals and Protestants, as well as other Christian bodies like the Church of Rome, the Orthodox or Greek Church, and the Ethiopian or Coptic Church. And so we began last week by looking at the scriptures themselves, since they are the fountain or the source of everything that we believe as Christians and the very ground of our faith. And here's the, the summary statement that, that we uh, looked at last week. It was, we believe in the Holy Bible, the inspired and errant word of God composed of the books of the Old and New Testaments the only certain rule of saving faith and practice. And so what that statement means is that God superintended the writing process of the Bible that all it contains is from him. And because it's all from him, it's without error. It's completely trustworthy. It contains 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, the 27 books in the New Testament. There are no other outside writings that belong in, in that body. And at the end of the day, after all of the discussion we can have, once we've considered what Christian history has to say, what tradition has to say, what scholars have to say, what pastors have to say, what commentators have to say, after we've considered what all of those sources have to say on any given subject, it's what the Bible says that, is the, that has the final say for what we should believe and how we should worship and how we should live as Christians. Now, I did say briefly last week that there are some groups outside of Protestantism that would, that would say that those two points, those last two points about the 66 books and the Bible having the final say, that those are not reflective of what their, their bodies believe. Uh, but, but we would say that they've departed from historical Christianity on that point, that, that the reformers, the Protestant reformers, they not only returned to the clear teaching of Scripture, but what they said, that the Bible has the final say for Christians, is consistent with what the church fathers or the early Christian leaders believed the Bible taught as well. And the reason why it's important for us to nail down this about the Bible, for us to start here and embrace it, is because in our ever-changing world, if we don't have a sure foundation from which to receive and build our faith on, then how can we ever be sure 
that the things that we believe about God are true. If we don't have an objective, unchanging source of truth, then we'll always be in question if what we believe should change or has changed or, or isn't consistent with the culture around us and needs to change. So we have to establish what the Bible says has the final say. That's our source of truth. Today, we're going to move on to the next proposition, the next truth claim that Christians have made about what the Bible teaches and what makes Christianity Christian, and that is what we believe about God. And to start with today, I, wanna, I want us to take a little quiz, okay? So I'm going to have some questions on the screen. They're true or false questions. Just answer them in your head. We'll run through. There's seven questions. We'll run through them, and then we'll, we'll go back and we'll look at what the, the answers are. So answer it in your head, true or false. There is one God. True or false? Answer in your head. Next question. God is three beings. True or false? Next question. There are three persons in the Godhead. True or false? Next question. The three persons in the Godhead have always related to one another as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. True or false? Fifth question. Each of the three persons of the Godhead is one-third of God. True or false? Number six. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in different eras or, different, or for different purposes, but never at the same time. True or false? And then the last question. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different names for the one person of God as he displays his work in three distinct roles. True or false? Now let's go back and, and look at those again. So first question was, there is, there is one God. One God, hit the, hit the next button. True or false? What, oh, you went all the way back. Go forward, go forward, go forward. There's one God, go forward. All right, here we go, answers, there's one God. True. If you said true, you got it right. Next question. God is three beings. True or false? It's false. Beings is the key word there. There are, there are three persons in the Godhead. True or false? Answer is? What does it say? True. The fourth question. The three persons in the Godhead have always related to one another as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. True or false? It is? Oh, hold on. Go back one. They're out of order? Ah, okay. I'll just tell you what the answers are. All right. Three persons in the Godhead have always related to one another as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is true. Each person of the, each of the three persons of the Godhead is one-third of God. That is false. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in different eras or, diff or for different purposes, but never at the same time. That is false. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different names for the one person of God as he displays his work in three distinct roles. That also is false. So, so how did you do? Were you more true or more false? Were your beliefs more historical or more heretical? Now, let me just be fair. It's tricky because it comes down to specific words rather than general 
concepts or general ideas. Each word matters. So you really have to pay attention there. And what, what, all, of these, what all of these questions have to deal with is the doctrine of God, what we believe about God as found in the Bible and confessed by Christians for 2,000 years. So just like last week, we're answering three questions. Why, or sorry, what we believe as Christians, why we believe it, and why it matters. So the first, the first question, what we believe as Christians, is this. We believe in the blessed trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Now, I have a diagram up here from the ESV study Bible that, that kind of helps us a little bit understand this idea that God is a perfect trinity or tri-unity. And so we see this triangle here all connected. We see that the Father is God. We see that the Son is God, and we see that the Holy Spirit is God. But we see that there are not three gods, but simply one God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So this, this kind of helps us a little bit grasp this idea of the Trinity. Now last week, I referenced the opening and closing lines of the Athanasian Creed. And I'm going to refer to that uh, this morning in just a moment. Athanasius was a pastor in Alexandria, Egypt in the 300s. Around that same time, there was another pastor whose name was Arius. And Arius taught that Jesus was not God before he came to earth. That Jesus was created, that Jesus was a man. And because of his exemplary life, he was adopted by God and became the son. And what Arius did was he put this belief to music. And you guys know how songs are. You'd be driving down the road, singing a song. You didn't even realize you were singing it, but you've just, you've heard it enough that you've just caught the words. And so Arianism spread like wildfire throughout the churches throughout the Roman Empire, which, by the way, is why we're so particular about the words to the songs that we sing in worship. So this caused great division in the church because you have people saying, oh yeah, I, I know that catchy tune. Jesus is not God. He was adopted. And yeah, Jesus is a created being. And you've got other people saying, no, that is not what we believe. It's not what the Bible teaches. And so Emperor Constantine called a council of over 300 bishops, which are pastors to pastors in that context. And, and Constantine said, this division among y'all is worse than a war. I mean, I have like killed men and the fighting that you're all having is actually worse than a war. So we're gonna have this big sit down, face to face, talk it out. What does the scripture actually say? And so that's what they, they did. It was called the Council of Nicaea. Sit down, face to face, talk it out. What does the scripture say? What is the Christian faith? And what they said is that what Arius was teaching is not 
the Christian faith. That rather, the scriptures teach that there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. And so they penned what is known as the Nicene Creed as a summary of what they all affirmed the Bible teaches. And along with that, they said, Arius, you're a heretic. We're going to send you off to some far-flung corner of the Roman Empire so you're not going to mess up stuff anymore. And you would think that the problem was solved, right? Well, a few months later, the bishop of Alexandria dies. Athanasius becomes the bishop, so the pastor to pastors in that city. And some of Arius's friends tell Emperor Constantine, hey, uh, Arius changed his, he changed his mind. He signed a copy of the Nicene Creed. He made some changes, but, but he's on board with the creed, so he should get to come back and be a part of everything. And Emperor Constantine told Athanasius, hey, put Arius back in. He's, he's, he's all right. And Athanasius said, no, he's a heretic. He doesn't believe what the Bible teaches. He's not a Christian. He shouldn't be a pastor. He's still, he's still on the outside. Well, Arius' friends didn't like that. They told a bunch of lies about Athanasius. And so he was exiled by the Roman emperor. Said, get, get out of here. Now, now you're the problem. And what followed, what followed was a back and forth fight between Athanasius, who is standing for biblical Christianity, and Arius and his teaching and his followers and Roman emperors and even other high leading uh, officials in the church. And this goes on back and forth, back and forth. Athanasius gets exiled five times by four Roman emperors spending 17 of the 45 years that he was the bishop of Alexandria in exile. And there's two phrases that have come to be associated with Athanasius. The one of them is given to him by his enemies. They call him the black dwarf because he was shorter and he was dark-skinned, and so that was a racial slur, basically. The second one is given to him by church leaders throughout the rest of church history, and it's Athanasius contra mundum. It's Athanasius against the world because he stood in the face of Roman emperors and heretics and peer pressure, and the culture, and he said, what y'all believe is garbage, this is what the Bible teaches us about who God is. And so, so after he died, and after biblical Christianity, a view of, the, of one God and three persons won the day, what is known as the Athanasian Creed was written to even further articulate what Christians believe the Bible teaches about who God is. And here's is some of what it says. And the Catholic, lowercase c, so what all of us Christians, uh, faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit, but the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, 
such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. For we are compelled by Christian verity, or the truth, to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord. So what we're affirming, they're saying, is that there is one God who has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are three persons, but not three beings or three parts. And each are equal. They are equally majestic and they're equally worthy of worship. And they are all of the same essence so that they possess the same attributes. They are all holy, all righteous, all loving, all merciful, all compassionate, all gracious, all just. Now, I don't know about you, but this is really, really hard to wrap your mind around. It's really, really hard to wrap my mind around this three in one, yet not divisible, not three parts, all of this. And and numerous attempts have been made to come up with some type of analogy to help us understand it. So people will say, well, God is like, the Trinity is like the sun, or the Trinity is like an apple, or the Trinity is like water, or they come up with all of these different analogies to understand the three persons of the Godhead. But the problem with every analogy is that it inadvertently teaches something that's not true about God in an effort to make understandable something that is true about God. If you get a chance this afternoon, I'd encourage you to go on YouTube and look up um, St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. And it's a, it's a little cartoon spoof put out by um, Lutheran satire. And so it's St. It's Patrick, missionary to Ireland, talking to just a couple of, of uh, average Joe Irishmen, and they say, you know, we're, we don't have all your fancy education and book learning. We're just simple folk. So you just explain to this, explain this to us in simple terms. And so he says, there's one God and three persons. And they're like, we really don't get it. Can you, can you give us an analogy? And he said, well, it's like the sun. And he gives that sun analogy. And they said... We're going to stop you right there, Patrick. That's mortalism. It's heresy. It was announced heresy at this point. Come on, Patrick. And he's like, okay, well, it's like, and he gives another example that that people have given before. And they're like, come on, Patrick. That's Arianism. That's heresy. And he gives like four or five. And they're like, and, and, and these are actually, most of them are things that, that you may have actually heard people say before. And every one of them has in it something that's actually not true about God in an effort to explain what is true. And so the video ends by Patrick reciting a portion of the Athanasian Creed. This is what we believe about God. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, but it's, it's hard to understand this, this idea that the Bible teaches. Harold Lenzel, in his 1953 book, A Handbook of Christian Truth, wrote, The mind of man cannot fully understand the mystery of the Trinity. He who has tried to understand the mystery fully will lose his mind, but he who would deny the Trinity will lose his soul. And about 50 to 100 years before that, Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, This truth is a great mystery. Let it be enough to receive it 
and believe it. And let us never abstain from all, and let us ever abstain from all attempts at explanation. It is childish folly to refuse assent to things that we do not understand. We are poor crawling worms of a day, and at our best, know little about God and eternity. Suffice it for us to receive the doctrine of the Trinity in unity with humility and reverence and to ask no vain questions. Now, this is definitely not a warm, fuzzy quote, but it is no less true in spite of it. So this is what we believe as Christians, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity and unity, that we believe in the blessed Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know what we believe, but why do we believe it? Why do we believe it? We don't, we don't simply believe it because Athanasius contramundum, because Athanasius went toe-to-toe with the world. We don't simply believe it because the Nicene Council affirmed it. We don't simply believe it because J.C. Ryle or Harold Lenzel affirmed it. Why do we believe it? And the answer is, we believe in the Blessed Trinity because that's what the Bible teaches. So, first of all, the Bible clearly teaches us that there's only one God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus quotes this verse. So Jesus, the Son of God, is affirming that there is only one God. But then in John's gospel, chapter one, verses one through three, we're told, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then jump on down to verse 14, and John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know from the Old Testament that there is only one God. And Jesus affirms this. But John says that the Word was with God, that the Word is God, and that the Word made all things. And so we see that the, the, we, we acknowledge that the work of creation is God's work, So if the Word made all things, then that's, again, affirming that the Word is God. And then we're told that the Word became flesh, so the Word became a human being. And last of all, John the Apostle says that he has seen the Word, referring to Jesus, and he says he's the only Son from the Father. So although this this may not make any rational sense to us, What we see already in the text is that there is one God and he is Father and he is Son at the same time. And then in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, we read, Jesus saying, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So when Jesus is speaking of his Father, he's speaking of God. 
And he's describing this exchange between the father and the son. So we see two parties here, or better still, two persons, not different modes or different manifestations. And Jesus is affirming the unity of these two persons when he says, I and the father are one. Again, meaning two persons, but only one God. And then we have the account of Jesus' baptism, which is found in all four of the Gospels. And in Jesus' baptism, we see Jesus, who is the Son of God, being baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist testifies that he sees the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke all affirm that the voice of thunders from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, showing us the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all present at Jesus' baptism, all three persons of the Godhead present and interacting with one another at the same time and the same place, three persons, one God. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel uh, also tell us about the Mount of Transfiguration, which we heard about last week and are reading from Second Peter, and that Jesus goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and Jesus displays his radiant glory there, and Moses and Elijah are with him, and the voice of God thunders, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So again, we see the Son and the Father present and interacting with one another at the same time and the same place, affirming the two persons of the Godhead there. And then in John 13 through 17, we have Jesus's last teaching setting with the disciples before he goes to the cross. And in chapter 14, verses 15 through 23, it reads, Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then he goes on saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So Jesus says, I'm going to manifest myself to the one who loves me and keeps my commandments. And one of the disciples, Judas, not the one who betrayed him, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So how will we know you? How will we feel you? How will we know you're present with us? And yet no one else will be able to see it. And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So in this text, 
we see Jesus talking about both the Father and the Spirit, and he says that he's going back to the Father and that he will ask the Father and the Father will give them the Spirit, and because the Spirit will be in them, both the Father and the Son will be in them as well, and Jesus will manifest himself. He will make himself known to them by the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so that's all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all relating to one another in this text and all relating to Christians at the same time together. The last text that I want to make mention of to explain why we believe what we believe is the one that Esther read for us right before the sermon. In Matthew chapter 28, we have the resurrected Christ on a mountain talking to 11 apostles. This is immediately before his ascension into heaven. And we're told that when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's important. Jesus received their worship. This is a really big deal. Because in Acts 10, Jesus... Uh, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and Cornelius gets down on the ground in front of Peter to worship him. And Peter says, get up, I'm just a man. And in Revelation chapter 22, an angel appears before John the apostle and John the apostle gets down on the ground to worship him and the angel says, get up, I too am but a servant. But here the apostles get down to worship Jesus and he doesn't stop them. If worship belongs only to God and Jesus allows himself to be worshiped, Jesus is affirming that he is deserving of worship and thereby affirming that he is God. And Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. By whom? Presumably by the Father. And then he tells his disciples to go and to make disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is called the Trinitarian formula that, that should be used in baptism. Their conversion to Christianity was to be rooted in a faith in God that acknowledged that God was a perfect trinity. One God in three eternally existent persons. As for the reason we believe in the Trinity, the answer is because that's what the Bible teaches. Now let me briefly address two objections before I talk about why it matters. The first objection, someone might say, the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. If the Bible is the source of everything you believe and you can't find the word Trinity in the Bible, then how can you believe the Trinity? The word Trinity didn't even show up in the church until the 200s or the 3rd century when North African Bishop Tertullian used it in explaining the idea of God and refuting heretics. That's, that's a man-made word. And I would concede the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Trinity is human language. We would also acknowledge that human language is how God reveals truth about himself. And the word Trinity explains for us what the Bible teaches in, in other terms. 
And so even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, what the word is representing is in the Bible. Find another word, whatever. But that concept is clearly a biblical concept. The second objection is someone might say, are you really telling me? Are you really telling me that if a person doesn't believe that there is one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all equal of worship and glory and majesty, never created, always existing, are you telling me that if a person doesn't believe that, that they won't be saved? What about the thief on the cross? That the thief on the cross who said, remember me when, I, when you come in your kingdom? Who, who died? Never got to get down off the cross, get baptized, nothing. Are you telling me that he believed in the Trinity? My, my response would be, first of all, the thief on the cross was likely a Jew who believed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He knew that there was one God. And the Holy Spirit is all over the pages of the Old Testament. And so he also would have believed in the Spirit of God. And when he looked at Jesus and he said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was acknowledging that Jesus was the Messiah who would live forever, whose kingdom would never end, who was the Christ. And so, yeah, as elementary as possible, I would say the thief on the cross believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Maybe not quite by those terms, but affirmed the Trinity. But the other, the other thing is no one ever completely gets the doctrine of the Trinity, but it's one thing to not completely get it it's another thing to deny it. Christians are always growing in our understanding of God. Being called disciples, students, that actually infers that we're always supposed to be learning and growing. And so it's one thing to say, well, I believe in God and I believe that Jesus is his son. And the promise is that if I trust in him, I'll get the Holy Spirit. And not have the language of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit three in one. It's a different thing to say, I believe in three gods, or to deny that Jesus is God, or to deny that the Holy Spirit is God. So yes, at the core, truly believing in Jesus is acknowledging the Trinity, even if you don't know the language. So we know what we believe, we know why we believe it, why does it matter? First reason, because if we get it wrong, we're guilty of breaking the first commandment. God says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. If Jesus is not God, we're breaking the first commandment. If the Holy Spirit is not God, we're breaking the first commandment. But God has made clear that he is one. So how do we worship Jesus and not break the first commandment, worship the Holy Spirit and not the, break the first commandment, and acknowledge that there is only one God by acknowledging what the Bible teaches, that there is one God in three persons who is each God, yet not three gods. It also matters because it gives us a right view of God, which gives us a right view of God's love. What do you think God was doing before he created all things? Think about that for just a moment. Before anything was, we know God was. What was God doing? Do you think he was bored? 
There weren't even angels yet. I mean, before anything, there's only God. Do you think he's bored? Do you think he's lonely? You think that's why God created all things? Because he was bored, he needed something to do? Do you think that's why God created people? Because he was lonely, he needed someone to love, he needed someone to love him? That there was some kind of neediness in God, some kind of insufficiency in God, so he had to make all things and make us to complete us? Do you think God is codependent? I, I just need someone in my life. I gotta make people, because I'm so lonely. Is that what you think God's like? No. God is a blessed trinity. And so before there was anything in the material world, there was God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, who loved one another unfathomably and who enjoyed and glorified one another incomprehensibly. And if God has enjoyed and continues to enjoy perfect love and intimacy within himself, then that means that when God invites us into that love through faith in Jesus Christ, turning away from our sins and embracing Christ, God is not needy. God is not desperate. God is not at home on a Saturday night going through his phone looking for someone to hang out with them. God is the party. And God is saying, come and join in this love. It makes God's love fuller and richer and more powerful because he doesn't need us. And yet he freely, overflowing with love, invites us. So it matters because when we see God for who he really is, we understand his love for what it really is. And we understand how rich it is. We believe in the blessed Trinity, one God in three persons, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal.